0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to Libromancy, a podcast about the magic of books. I'm your host, Josh, and today I'm going to be talking about The Lost City of Ethos by John Beers. So let's search for the magic of books. All right, everybody, we're getting into it. This is the fourth book in the series. Things are getting really exciting. Things are moving ahead at a fast pace, and I really do, I really do just enjoy these books. They are so much fun. They are so good, and they have some insightful moments, even though you're not really kind of expecting to see them. You could almost call this kind of like an anime book, right? Like, oh yeah, they just go from plot to plot and they get stronger, but do they really learn anything? Do they really change as characters? And I think the answer here is yes. Yes, they do. It might not be like the main point of the story that they're changing, but it's part of it. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. We've seen Hugh, our main character, he's changed quite a bit. Along with the other, Sebay's changed, Godric's changed, Talia's has changed. We're seeing more and more of Alustin. This is a really good book series, and it's really telling that the characters are continuing to grow, and we're seeing more and more of the world, and we're understanding more. I never feel like I'm getting info-dumped because it makes sense in context why the characters who have lived in their whole lives in this world need to know the same information that I need to know. Now as far as things like the plot go, this is a decent plot, they are looking for something, they have to then protect it after they find it until reinforcements and help can arrive and they can take it back. The writing, John Bierce's writing I think is continuing to get better and better. I still think he's got a little bit of work to do, but he has improved so much from the first book, which it wasn't bad, the first book. Don't think I'm saying that it was a bad book when I say this, but he's gotten better. I have I've said in the last episode, I really love the way he describes the Dreamfire, doing different things and changing things, and it's not just the same one of two, three, two or three things. Now, one thing that I'll say is that sometimes you know, the way his book feels, the atmosphere in his book, like the way he describes the area he's in or the characters are in it doesn't really land a hundred percent for me like I'm not saying I don't like it I'm just saying like I sometimes I don't feel like I'm actually in the spot where I am like this book they're in a jungle and while sometimes I, I get the sense of the jungle and the size of it and the scope of it other times I'm just like no I'm just you know I'm just with the characters and they're kind of irrespective of where they're at. They're on boats quite a lot. And so especially like when they're on boats, I don't I just don't feel the kind of the atmosphere the whole time. But again, this is not really a big problem. This is just something that I'm talking about here. I really do think that his logic is super consistent in his stories, the reasons why things happened. And sometimes the reason is as simple as, I was angry and I did this, or I was depressed and I did this, or just because. Th- those are logical reasons. They- they're not satisfying logical reasons sometimes, you know, especially when you're like, well, why did you just do that? Well, because, well... Yeah, there's more to it than that, but there's not. But I also love how consistent John Pierce has been with his magic system, the way things work, the diligence he's done in kind of putting these things together, especially with Hugh's crystal magic and Talia's magic and the, you know, sub you know, every... the powers are very cool, you know, the attunement and everything is very cool, but giving your characters really difficult things to work through and over them, giving them a good challenge really amps up the ability of your characters to do cool things with the magic and makes them more likable for the most part. Now, I'm not going to say I don't like, uh, we're going to spoil a little bit here, Godric, since he has less of a challenge. I mean, his main challenge is just that he doesn't have the same amount of magic mana as his dad did at his age, which means he's going to have less and can do a little bit less. And that's not to his fault, right? He's nothing some, not something he can work to overcome like the rest of them, but it is something that we have to deal with. So let's just get into some spoilers here. And while we're talking about uh, Godric, let's keep going with him. I like that this book talks about him trying to live up to the expectations of his father, not... And when I say that, I, I don't mean like his father expects him to follow in his footsteps and to be, you know, exactly like him. But he wants to live up to the standards his father's put up. You know, his father's this known as this great power, basically. He's kind of got his own strength. He is legendary-ish among you know people who know him and among high power levels and Roderick's like i'm just i can't do this I'm, i can't be that good i'm not strong enough i don't have the mana reserves yet and arthur arthur his dad is like i don't want you to do what i do i want you to find yourself and to be what you want to be now i know you're going to be a more mage pretty much because of the crowd you're in you know with the lust and then the mage errants but at the same time do what you want to do And so their dynamic where it's like Godric sometimes is like, I'm so frustrated at my dad. He's too perfect and I'm not. But then he's like, but he immediately is on himself about it and saying like, well, it's not dad's fault. And dad wants me to do whatever I want. So like, you know, we're getting this confliction in him. And it's nice to see that, you know. And Alustin, we're seeing more and more that he just hates the Havathi. And we know why. Because they destroyed the land of Helico where he's from. And they killed the last, they killed the Lord of Bells. And how sick is his... Sword that can leave echoes of the blade in place, so that they work as real blades and they'll cut. But after one hit, then they kind of go away. So they are impressive, and I we get the drop that there is a, another last son or daughter of Helicote. But he Aldustan says they're not a true son or daughter of Helicote, and so I can't wait for the time when they fight again. Like they fight each other with those blades. That's going to be impressive. But we do get Archer's warning. That Alustan is only desired, his only goal is revenge against the Havathi. He doesn't care for anything else. All of his effort is working towards that. And so we're seeing like okay, maybe we need to start trusting Alustin less and less. I I have hopes that he can maybe with his students, you know, kind of pull back from that a little bit. But we'll see, we even see, you know, in one of his point of views that he has two secret projects that are going forward that does Kandarin doesn't even know about. So that's kind of a sign that maybe Alustin is not gonna be as good as we were hoping he is. So now let's move on to Sabe. Sabe is such a funny one, she's kind of taking this role of like spy master, leader. She's so funny. She's so smart most of the time. But then now that she's got her freedom with her, she's like, I'm going to go romance everybody and everything or try to, you know, and she fails. But it's just so funny because she's starting to finally deal with these like normal teenage things. And she's like, this is not this hard. This shouldn't be difficult, but it is so difficult. Like, how can I do this? Super funny seeing all that stuff. And I like that we get to learn a little bit more, not learn a bit more, but we see kind of their trauma starting to like crop up in their nightmares and they're starting to have these problems not problems but she has nightmares you know being attacked by a byla the magma mage in the last book and then being chased by the sea serpents that she goes and rescues dell from right she's living these nightmares and then talia is able to finally use her dream fire for the correct purpose not for the correct purpose but for its real purpose which is to you know re uh to remove nightmares and to help people process things that are difficult for them, right? And so I like that John Bierce is kind of, he's not sweeping it under the rug and saying, oh, it doesn't matter. They're just too strong of characters for that. They don't suffer from these things. But he's also not saying, he's also saying this kind of trauma and repeated incidents is not necessarily the main point of my story here. So here's a reason why And how we can kind of avoid having to explain again why our characters aren't turning into, you know, crazy psychopaths with tons of PTSD, right? From killing a bunch of people or from being attacked so much or from being, you know, hunted and chased everywhere. So now we're going to have to get to Talia. She's funny. Uh, This book is good. She really opens up. Hugh and Talia, of course, they do get together in this book. It's so fun. I love it. So glad for their relationship that they just are so comfortable around each other. And that's like... The best feeling in a relationship when you just get with somebody and there's no... It's not that there's no expectations, but it's that the expectations are right. You know, like you just love each other and you just want to be with each other, and it's not—it's not heavy. It's just nice. At least that's how some you know they are for me, right? So this is that I just love their relationship. I love that Hugh's spellbook keeps trying to apologize to Talia, and it keeps dropping like live mackerels on her, or giving her half-eaten fish, or like just trying to like bring her a present to make her feel better because it you know dragged her forcefully for a while. And unfortunately, though, in this book, when they are fighting the Havathi, which is such an epic fight scene. I mean, if I wanted to talk about all the amazing scenes that just made me go like, oh, yeah, this was so good. There's just too many of them in these books. I can't talk about them all. But Talia destroying Grovebringer, the ancient Havathi weapon, which this is one thing. This is another little minor thing. Like they say that, you know, warlocks are very rare. Or, or more rare than not, and that, you know, in all of Skyhold, there's only like Hugh that we know of, but the Sacred Swordsmen, which I love Alustin, he's like, you know, not even half of them are swords. They really need to come up with a better name that's more inclusive for all the other weapon types, but all of the Sacred Swordsmen are warlocks who have pacted with sentient weapons or near-sentient weapons to gain their powers and their affinities and then move on, but it's like, They just seem to have a near-infinite supply of Warlocks to be binding with these weapons. Like, we fought two or three hands by now, and that's three to five or more Sacred Swordsmen each time. So, quite a lot. I mean, Grovebringer's the same from the four, but now he's dead or she's dead. We don't know. Dream Mana does weird things. Like, when it hit Grovebringer, it caused all the... It ate holes in it, caused the tree to shoot up, and then wither away to nothing. So, that was so cool, but... Oh, we forgot to talk. The Exile Splinter. They finally find the Lost City of Ethos because it's phasing back into existence. Again, nobody can really remember where it is or what it was. Or they remember what it is now, but not where it was. And they get to it and they're like, hey, you know what? This thing is just like a big spike hanging over the labyrinth. Like, this is crazy you know and they're like it doesn't glow it should glow if it's a weapon of mass destruction you know shouldn't just be like unnoticeable like it is but the scenes where they're flitting between the void and reality is just that's cool where it goes they're in the void then they shut back and now they're in the reality and now they're in the void and the the scenes in the void and of the lost city of ethos where everything is cold and dark and silent is just so crazy and so i that that atmosphere was done really well when they're in the void he has a strikingly good tone there where you feel you kind of feel the oppressiveness of it even as you're reading it and that they're being stalked by the mage eater which is a tiger that likes to attack mages because cats of course can see your met your uh Your aether deposits, your, not your aether deposits, it can see your mana, basically. And of course, why wouldn't cats be able to see your aether? And it goes after mages specifically because it was attacked by a mage when it was younger. And this little tiger is the bravest little tiger of them all, completely saves the entire world from the Cold Ones, which are devastatingly scary, creepy, scary beings that live in dead universes after they've gone aether critical or... Kind of before after, they basically just suck up all the warmth and the heat of everything in the universe, live out their fake, illusory lives for a couple of weeks to a month, and then when all the heat's gone from the universe, they go into hibernation and wait till they can make a jump to the next reality, which they can't go through labyrinths because the builders, the weavers, blocked, them, blocked that from them, right, somehow, which is crazy. This is the first stuff we're really hearing about them, and we're all learning it from the after book effects, that's all redacted, which is really nice. It's a way to build us a little bit of world building, but it's not critical, so you don't really have to read it. But they, uh, the old ones are coming back. Not the old ones, the cold ones, which is a nice plan where it's the old ones versus the cold ones, right? So the cold ones are coming, and they have their little prophet guy who was living in the lost city of ethos who stopped who was there and the mage eater comes and kills him right before you know he can start doing his stuff which was amazing i just it's the best because the whole time the tiger's chasing them and the tiger's doing other stuff and like oh it's just a tiger but tigers are freaking scary guys like they're big they're silent they're super dangerous like he does a lot of work into it talking about it in the afterward he's pretty spot on well he changes to some things of course but like Tigers are scary and very powerful, and they can totally kill you if they want to, right? After they protect the exile splinter and Kandoran gets there, Hugh and Kandoran are talking, and Kandoran is like, you know, he's like, why did you do the the exile splinter? Couldn't there have been a better way? And Kandoran's like, I did it because I was angry. They killed my child. You know, Sphinx's mate for life. As a sentient being, I don't necessarily understand exactly how the mating for life, if it's just like, I mated my wife for life. But I, I just, maybe there's more to it than that, but doesn't matter. This is beside the point, you know, the Havathi Empire or the Athodian Empire killed her daughter. So in a rage, they spent years with other, with like five or ten other people building the exile splinter. Then they cast the exile splinter, you know, completely destroying the Ethonian main city, you know, sending it into the void. And she says, was it wrong? Probably. But I was angry and we were all angry and none of us really felt bad about, you know, sending all these kind of innocent people to death, right? And then she talks about the price of her power, you know, the price to do that is that all of her memories or a ton of her memories from before then are just gone. She can't remember her husband's name. She can't remember her child's name. She can see their faces. She can't remember exactly why or how certain things happened. But I mean, it's just a nice thought, like, power is power, and there's always a price for the power that you gain, right? Either the opportunity cost of, well, I could be learning or doing other things instead of learning and doing magic, or... A more tangible cost like using the exile splinter which erased Ethony the city of Ethos from everybody's minds, you know, also causing her to lose a lot of her memories. It's just something nice to think about, like there's always more consequences than you're expecting. You know, Kandoran hope that by getting the Exile Splinter back, she could potentially recover her memories. She's not going to, it doesn't look like. It's just one more sad thing on both sides, right? And Hugh in this instance, in this fight, is very badly injured when he goes up against an ash mage of course he gets ash in his in his lungs and his lungs have been hurt and weakened a lot he is very scary for a little bit you're not sure if he's gonna make it and his uh spell book is protecting him and trying to bite everybody deltali gets there and she's like it's okay spell book oh man i'm like almost tearing up not because it's like it's not that it's it's emotional though like it's a very heartfelt scene. They've just won the day, but Hugh's gone missing. Nobody can find him. You know, they find him and his spell book's defending him to the, you know, because he feels like he's dying. He doesn't want to let anybody close. Natalia is able to get close. Like, I just like breaks your little heart a little bit because you're like, oh no, what's going on? Like, it's so sad. But Hugh has grown. I'm going to rewind a little bit and talk about this. He's grown a ton in this book or by this time, you know, it's been Let's see, about two years since they started at Skywind, Skyhold, excuse me. And his confidence is really going up when he at least is definitely talking about wards. I just love the scene where he's going to, cre- He's they're on the island that will be renamed Stormward's Gift. And the Rod hunter making a ward to kind of protect their secret ceremony and stuff. And Hughes looks at it and he's like, I can't let this stand. This ward offends me on a personal level and on a professional level. I'm going to redo it. And then he like snaps his fingers and causes their chalk that they've been drawn to like puff off the ground and flow back to their chalks. And, like, reform, which, because it's a crystal, you know, it works like that. It's so funny. And he's like, I'm going to redo this ward. He does it, like, super good and amazing. And he just, like, it's an attention diverting ward. So it'll do this. It'll do that. And then at the party, he's just being, like, talked to by everybody. And then it's the same time that Talia comes in, you know, confesses to him a little later. It's just, uh, you know, like, mm, so good. That was just so nice. And a little bit, we see... You know, Hugh's eyesight gets better and better, and he's like, oh, I'm in, The people are like, why are you sitting in the dark? Because he's like, I'm not, like, it's light out. You can totally read and everything, and everybody's like, uh, no, it's pitch black in here. He's got night vision, part of his pact with Kandoran. He's giving Sphinx's eyes, so he'll have a lot better eyesight. We also learned that Hugh's notebook can spy on private, um, you know, encryption transmissions through the Index, we think. We're not sure where they're coming from, but they're talking to and from Kandoran a lot with the Council and the Coven. It's kind of very scary, and we learn a lot about liches, and I love it. So, they're talking about liches, and somebody's like, isn't that like an undead skeleton mage who tries to, like, grow past being just a skeleton? And Alustin looks at him and was like, what are you talking about? Like, a lich is just an old mage, or not even an old mage, a mage who tries to convert themselves from a physical body to a physical space kind of thing, basically. So you have to use your affinity, and you kind of use it or lose it. So if you don't use one of your two affinities, building your Demesne, I don't know how to say that word. I've read it a ton, but as I'm going to say, Demesne, mes- de or just like your 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 fortress, basically, right? If you don't use your affinity, you're going to lose it, but you have to use it in insane amounts. You know, the bigger it is, the more it costs, the more you want to be able to do with it, the more it costs, but liches are very, very powerful within their own home, you know, within their home. Okay, I looked it up, but apparently it's just pronounced "domain," which is so dumb. Demain? Why would you have an S in it then? Why can't you just spell it normal, English? Come on, please. I just, sometimes I just shake my head at English and worry about it. But I also, we get a little bit of a mention of the greater Rodhan fleet. So apparently the Rodhan family is also, are also world hoppers, like, That's crazy. I mean, we know that there's a lot of world hopping going on, that humans aren't native to Anastas, but it's just kind of crazy imagining that this whole family is part of this huge thing. And, like, what would have happened if the tongue eater had gone off against the Radhan? Would that have just crippled, like, tons and tons of multidimensional travel, basically, you know, through and around the labyrinth and the greater worlds? Like, could have been a really bad sign, but... That is everything I have to talk about today about The Lost City of Ethos. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks to David Hillowitz for the intro and outro music. Of course, if you have any questions or comments, please send them to libromancypod at gmail.com. You know, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. It helps a lot. And remember to search for The Magic of Books.